Hear these words once again from the reading. Every day we gather what we think we'll need, pick up what we love and all that we so far believe, put on our history, shoulder our experience and memory, take inventory of our blessings, and we start walking toward morning. And if we add up, that's the end of the reading. And if we add up those days when we gather what we think we'll need, after six or seven days, we've gathered quite a lot. If you were me last week, you would have gathered conversations and celebrations, food and more food, Scrabble games, jigsaw puzzle solving, selective TV watching, and time stolen away to adore all those Facebook posts from family and friends. There is a new baby in our extended family. He lives in Greensboro, North Carolina. My nephew Pete and his wife Sarah have welcomed Malcolm Paul Collegian the day after Thanksgiving. Malcolm's mother Sarah posted a sweet little movie of herself playing the piano and singing away in a manger with Malcolm snuggled up tightly to her chest in one of those things. Those, <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh, sound asleep. This image has stayed with me all week. What could baby Malcolm be feeling in that warm cocoon with the voice of his mother already dear to him singing? He probably doesn't know the word for singing yet, but when he does learn it, maybe he'll be sitting on a piano bench next to Sarah as her hands guide his on the black and white keys and they sing songs they have made up about their life together. If, as Victoria Safford suggests in the reading, each morning when we leave the house we shoulder our experience and memory, I was lucky to do a lot of that last week, too. My sister Anne was here for a visit. We sorted through three big boxes of papers and photographs that had been waiting patiently, as boxes of papers will do, for someone to caress and sort and untangle and appreciate them. In the boxes were experience and memory, moments of profound joy and deep sadness. We made one pile of our grandfather's sermons to send to our nephew John in Wisconsin. John has two daughters, and unless he and his wife change their minds, he'll be the last alling in our particular strand. We sorted other papers and photos and made more little piles that will be sent to various nieces and nephews and saved for our own children. I was particularly touched reading through a stack of greeting cards that my parents had sent to me during a time in my life when I was struggling with just about everything. The cards were of the sort that I'm sure you have seen, a, a picture of a cat on the front with claws hanging on a door frame and saying, just hang in there a look of terror on the cat's face. My father's neat printing on one card even included a long row of X's and O's. I don't think it occurred to me at the time how very much out of character that was for him. It was very demonstrative, and he was not a demonstrative man. But now I have them forever, those hugs and kisses. Every morning we leave our houses. We decide what we'll carry, how much truth-telling, how much compassion, how much integrity? In the summer of 1990, I joined together with members of First Unitarian Church in Dallas, Texas, as a volunteer at a Planned Parenthood clinic there. My assignment was to hold a sign of support for Planned Parenthood at the entrance to the parking lot at the rear of the clinic building. Clients arrived either at this entrance or the front entrance, and volunteers were needed at both spots. We knew that a group of volunteers from other churches in Dallas 
churches that did not support Planned Parenthood, had been picketing at the clinic all summer. Ours was a silent vigil of solidarity. In the training that we received before the vigil, we were reminded not to engage in conversation with any of the demonstrators from the other churches. It was a typical Texas summer day, hot and humid. I don't remember what I wore, but I do remember that my counterpart, a woman who represented the other point of view, was wearing a crisp summer dress and sandals. Her hair was neatly brushed, and unlike me, she did not appear to be perspiring. She was also carrying a sign. Hers was red and white in the shape of a traffic sign. You can picture it. As I settled in on one side of the driveway in a small patch of shade, she glanced nervously toward me and said, Hi. And I nodded and said, Hi. My shift was for two hours. During that time, we made eye contact a couple of times, but were otherwise silent. Only one car came in the driveway during those two hours. We had been told not to approach vehicles, simply to stand quietly and hold our sign high. I had started out that morning with big butterflies in my stomach, but now as my two hours were drawing to a close, I felt relieved to be almost done. The other woman and I looked at our watches at noon and simultaneously lowered our signs. We smiled weakly at one another. I decided it was okay to say something now that the shift was over, so I looked at her again and said, I'm glad to be going home now, aren't you? She said, yes. I was really afraid of what might happen today. Thank you for being so nice. I thought for a minute and wondered what I had done that was so nice. But then I thought maybe what she really meant was, thank you for not being not nice. So I said, well, thank you. Now we have to go home and get cool, don't we? Although I have to stop at the grocery store first. And she said, oh, too bad. I hate shopping on Saturday. And I said that I did too, but I had to make a dessert to take to a potluck at my church that night, and I didn't have the faintest idea what to make. So I thought I'd go to the store and be inspired. She said she had a good recipe that she always made to take to potlucks at her church and that everyone seemed to love it. And she said, I can tell you the ingredients. It's real easy. So she told me the three ingredients. I didn't even have to write them down. And she told me how to put the dessert together. I thanked her. She wished me good luck with the dessert. And then she said, it was good to meet you. And after a minute, I said, good to meet you, too. And we walked to our cars, stowed our signs in the back seats, and cranked up the air conditioning as we drove away. The Unitarians love the dessert. Every morning, we leave our houses, and we decide what we'll take with us, how much willingness to change or be changed, how much faith and hope. Early in 1994, I was on an airplane trip between Salt Lake City, Utah, and Butte, Montana. It was the last leg of a series of flights from Orlando to Montana, where I was headed to spend a blissful week with my four-month-old granddaughter. The weather was a bit iffy when we took off from Salt Lake, but the pilot assured us that aside from a few bumps, he thought it would be a smooth flight. I'm not an easygoing flyer under the best of circumstances, but there was that pot of gold in the form of a toothless smile from the baby, so I sucked it up, as they say, and I strapped myself in. Passengers were packed in like sardines. I was glad that I had a window seat. 
My seatmate was a very tall, handsome young cowboy in his late teens who introduced himself immediately. He called me ma'am at every opportunity and told me that he had been to Salt Lake City with his father, who was seated elsewhere on the plane. They had been to Salt Lake City to attend a convention of promise keepers. Inwardly, I groaned because I knew that Promise Keepers was a very popular Christian men's organization that had a particularly 1950s view of women's place in society. Not wanting to be rude, I mumbled something to the effect of, that must have been fun, and picked up my book. He was not to be dissuaded, however, and proceeded to say, oh, yes, ma'am, it was really fun. I learned so much about how to be a good man, and I met some inspiring people. The temptation to say, yeah, I bet you did, was almost overwhelming. But I took a breath and said, sounds like a good experience for you, and picked up my book again. By this time, about 15 minutes had passed. We had not been served a beverage because the flight attendants were still strapped into their little jump seats. And the pilot who had previously said, aside from a few bumps, now said that he had asked the flight attendants to remain seated for the duration of the flight because the weather up ahead was worsening. I was concentrating on my breath, that is, taking it in and blowing it out. But those breaths were coming closer together with every buck and lurch of the plane. Several of the overhead bins popped open, causing a wave of anxiety to roll through the cabin. But the bins were jam-packed full and nothing fell out. Soon it became apparent from the blinding flashes of light outside the plane that we were in the middle of a thunderstorm. I was beginning to decompose. Just when I thought I was going to really and truly lose it, my seatmate took my hand. I think I forgot to mention that I had been grabbing his sleeve every time there was a flash of lightning, so he probably thought that he had permission. He took my hand and asked if I would like to pray with him. It didn't seem polite under the circumstances to say no thanks, so I said, yes, please. And then he said, what would you like to pray? Somehow, maybe because I had been polite about promise keepers, he seemed to think that I might know some prayers. I suggested the 23rd Psalm, which I did know by heart from all my years of growing up in Congregational Church Sunday School. The Lord is my shepherd, I began. I shall not want. My seatmate joined in with his strong, baritone voice. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. When we got to, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I remembered why I had chosen this psalm in the first place. He held my hand tighter. Now you know, because I'm standing here, that the plane landed safely in Butte with the typical applause for the captain and the crew as we touched down. My seatmate patted my hand and wished me a happy visit with my granddaughter, then retrieved his big hat from the overhead bin and made his way to the front of the plane where his father was seated. We waved at one another one more time at baggage claim, and then he was gone. Every morning, every day we leave our houses, not knowing if it will be for the last time. And we decide what we'll take with us, what we'll carry, how much arrogance, how much anger, how much willingness to change or be changed. 
In the early 1980s in Point Reyes Station, California, I was partners with my husband at the time in a natural foods grocery store. We struggled, as do many small business owners, to make ends meet and to provide for our blended family of four school-aged children. The big news that year was that I had bought a brand new car. It was a sturdy little Datsun four-door sedan, very modest, nothing much to look at, but it had a good radio and it got great mileage. Because I was the boss, I got the premier parking space in the driveway behind the store. At the end of one particularly long and exhausting day, I was finally out the door and headed for home. As I turned the corner to the driveway, I gasped. My car had been completely covered with a huge canvas tarp, a tarp that had old, dried-up paint splotches all over it. A local painting contractor had been hired to paint the little cottage next to the driveway where my car was parked. They had apparently decided to cover my car with a tarp to avoid covering it with paint spills. Good decision. I had to give them credit for that one, but I didn't understand why they hadn't just asked me to move the car. Because when they threw the tarp over my car, the radio antenna broke off. Now, that might not seem like such a big deal, but to this weary woman, it was the proverbial last straw. I stormed up onto the porch of the cottage where the chief painter, Van Vandermotten, was cleaning his brushes. He looked up and smiled as I approached, and then he stopped smiling as I proceeded to say some very unkind things, way out of proportion to the offense, if it could even be called an offense. When Van offered to replace the antenna, I brushed his offer aside and stomped back down the stairs, got into my now damaged car, and drove home. As I told the story to the family that night at the supper table, they started laughing, which made me even madder. They said things like, boy, I wish we'd been there to see that. And poor Van, it'll take him a long time to recover from that one. No one was sympathetic about the radio antenna being broken. My husband said, let's switch cars tomorrow. I'll take the Datsun to San Rafael and get a new antenna and you can drive the truck. No, I said. I hate the truck and I hate driving the truck. There was lots of hyperbole going on here, but remember, it had been a long day and it was my new car and my feet hurt and I was madder than a wet hen. Not making excuses, just laying out all the facts. For the next six or seven years, every time I saw Van the painter walking down the street, I crossed to the other side. He stopped coming into the store to buy groceries. It was written in my very hard heart that the whole sorry mess had been his fault. And then Phil Drath died. Phil was a building contractor who had provided work for every carpenter, painter, electrician, and laborer in our town and the surrounding towns. Phil hired women when hiring women wasn't standard practice. And Phil was a Quaker, a pacifist. He had run unsuccessfully for Congress in 1966 on the Peace and Freedom Party ticket, and then again in 1968 on the Democratic Party ticket. He lost both times. In 1971, he sailed to North Vietnam with other Quakers on the ship Phoenix. They delivered medical supplies to the North Vietnamese. He had met Jane Fonda and said she seemed like a nice person. 
Phil's family arranged to have a memorial gathering for him in a beautiful meadow next to the National Seashore. People came from all over, and it took about an hour to organize the crowd into one huge circle. A few people spoke, then a few more, and as I listened, I could feel something give way inside me. I got a little teary. I wondered if when I died there would be people who said the same kind of profoundly moving and deeply loving things about me. Would there be any funny stories to tell, or would people stand around uneasily shifting from one foot to the other? And then, of course, because this is the way things work in life, or at least they have worked this way for me so far, I saw Van the painter standing on the other side of the circle, exactly opposite. After the final prayer, I walked across the uneven grass, fingers crossed that he would stay put so I didn't lose sight of him in the crowd. As I got closer, he noticed me, and I thought I saw him wince, but it looked like he might have been a little teary, too. I got right up close to him and stood squarely in front of him and said simply, I'm sorry I was such a bitch when you threw the tarp over my car. Will you please forgive me? And then we both started to laugh. That wonderful laughing, crying, laughing thing that happens sometimes. We stood there with our arms draped across each other's shoulders for the longest time, laughing and cracking little jokes, mostly about how mad I had been and how scared Van was and how he didn't know what to do and how the worst part for him was not being able to shop at the store anymore. That was the gift that I received when Phil Drath died. Every morning, we leave our houses and we decide what we'll take with us, how much love and gratitude packed with our lunch and our medications. Like the god Janus, we step into the new year with two faces, one looking back and one looking forward. We stand here at the gate. We pause in the doorway. Every day we gather what we think we'll need, pick up what we love and all that we so far believe. Put on our history, shoulder our experience and our memory. Take inventory of our blessings and start walking. It's a new day and a new year.